that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola. My partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, is with me. And we are thrilled to welcome back a friend of the show, a friend of ours for a long time. Obviously, a friend of Pat for for a very, very long time. Friend of you, friend of me, friend of everybody. Friend of you, friend of me. (laughs) That's right. And an icon of Italian-America. The one and only Marianne Esposito, Cavaliere Marianne Esposito, is back with us. So, Marianne, welcome back. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, John. It's always good to be with you guys because you're just so funny and full of good things. I love talking to you. And Stephanie, too. Stephanie's good, too. Yeah, Stephanie is. She's the best. She keeps yeah. us ticking every day. I don't know how she does yeah. all the things she does. Yeah. But she's uh, she's a real stud for us, so we're happy that she's behind the glass keeping us going. Otherwise, there might be no podcast. But uh, right. <laughs> No, there would be no. Not that there might not be a podcast. There would, there not, would be not be a podcast. Yeah. A podcast. yeah. yeah. There would not be a podcast without Stephanie. That's very, very true. And she's also the ever-present professional Italian-American. She's been bopping all over the country for awards and conferences and writings and stuff. So, Oh, good. Yeah. John, you need to amend that. The professional Italian-American of Northeastern Pennsylvania. The one and only, yes. Absolutely. The one and only. The official, yes. bona fide, card-carrying, NAPA professional Italian-American. If we had our own Congress, she would be one of those uh, members who never had to run for re-election, right? She'd have, like, no no opposition. Oh, man. We need that, don't we? I mean, we do. Really. The yeah. Congress of Italian America. Mm-hmm. Handle our own stuff. You think things yeah. are dysfunctional now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and all Italian American government will make anything else look completely normal. I'm not even going to comment on that. No, thing. no, there's not much you can say. Half the time on the floor would be announcing titles. <laughs> Now, yeah. now for the representative from school, it'd be like all day, Cavaliere, Eccellenza, Ufficiale, Grand Ufficiale, past president, past national president, past representative. Hasn't it been interesting to watch the politics in Italy because first female prime minister and the first piece of news, you know, obviously very controversial election, first female, far right, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the first major international news story that came out was how she was going to handle the feminization or masculinization of the titles of prime minister. And then it became a conversation of, well, there's really no female version of avocado. And it just, it, that's the most important thing to these people is how, how's the business card look? You know, I love that. Oh, I was just in Italy, you know, just 12 days ago. I was in Umbria for filming. Yeah. Uh, for filming. And also I took a group oh, know, wow. tw- of 20. So uh, we went uh, truffle hunting and they had olive oil tastings. And of course they ate a lot of pork because Umbria is pork country. So, uh, and and it was beautiful weather and there were a lot of political signs up in support of her. So, yeah. Was this your first time back since COVID? No, I was in Sicily in May. Oh, right, right, right. But ironically, and nobody got COVID in the Sicily trip, but ironically on this trip to Umbria, even though everybody was masked on the bus, three people got COVID. Oh man. Yeah. So we had to isolate them away from the other group. And it was just, anyway, this thing's not over. You know, this virus isn't over. Talk to to Dottore Gaetano. He'll tell you. Yeah, it's not over. It's certainly not. And especially people who are at risk and stuff like that. It's, you know, yeah. you just keep seeing these spikes. How, how did you find leading a tour group in the post-COVID Italy versus the times before? It was absolutely crazy. Uh, I spent a th- a three or four days in um, 
Florence before meeting the group in Perugia. And I decided to go to the Uffizi because they had a new Leonardo exhibit. And I'm telling you, it was like being a sardine in a can. People were just mobbed. You couldn't move. You could not move in any of these rooms. It was crazy. If you wanted to pick up COVID, that was a good place to do it. You know, I mean, I was, I was wearing my mask, but a lot, most people were not, but everyone's in Italy now. Everyone. It's just, you know, the, the gates have been open. So everybody is traveling. Yeah. It was nice to be back obviously, but I don't think I would go to Florence again for a while until it calms down a little bit. Yeah. It feels like all this pent up desire to be in Italy. Yeah. It's just like I was reading an article the other day because I filmed with uh, our co-host Dolores and a project in Sicily and we filmed in Ballarol market. Oh yeah. The Ballarol. Yeah. You can't beat that. I mean, it's the old, no. the oldest market yeah. continuous in Europe. Do, and, do you uh, notice that Ballarol kind of goes like by l'amour that song? <laughs> yes, you could switch out Ballero. <laughs> you could. They could actually <laughs> get your tripe and yeah. cheese and fruits at Ballero. <laughs> That'd be good, right? <laughs> we should get them a theme song. But I was, I was there, and I was. Um, I noticed it was busy, you know. But like last week, I read an article. I don't remember what it was, and I think it was like the Telegraph or a, a British paper, and it was saying that the South has seen like a nearly twenty percent increase in tourism, and a lot of these markets are actually for the first time in, you know, in some cases a thousand years, becoming real tourist destinations now. And they're overwhelmed mm-hmm. and it's it's somehow I mean it's positively impacting the South because of the, the added revenue. Yeah. But the businesses now, a lot of the local businesses are closing and souvenir stands are moving, you know, everything becomes Disney World. And it's just wild to see how quickly that happened. Yeah. People really flooded back to Italy fast, you know? Yes. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. So But tourism can destroy neighborhoods. Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, Sorrento turned into Disney World. If you see Sorrento, um, like Via San Cesario, which is kind of like the main drag of old Sorrento, the Sorrento that goes back to the Phoenicians, that was an actual real street with real like butchers and fish stores and stuff, vegetable um, stores before the 60s. And now it's just it's it's Disney World. It's just totally changed. Yeah, look at Venice. I mean, somebody there's also an article saying that um one of the things that has actually hurt a lot of these cities, believe it or not, is the Airbnbs because people are buying up places that would have been housing. They're not living mm-hmm. in them. They're just using them as full-time Airbnbs. Yeah. And the, the you know historic centers, like they were even saying like Spacanopoli is seeing a, a real struggle with living space. I mean, you know, it's packed as it is because people are turning a lot of those apartments into Airbnbs and people are being pushed out of the part of the, I mean, this is a part of the city that's been occupied since Greek times, you know, and lived mm-hmm. in since Greek times. So it's it's going to be an interesting balance coming back out and seeing tourism sort of unleashed again on such a tourist heavy country, you know. Mm-hmm. And you were there now twice since the 30th season. Yeah. Ciao Italia is on the air right now, right? Everybody yes, is uh, yes. celebrating been, 30 yeah. years. How's that right. been received? Well, you know, it's the old tried and true fans that are always there. You know, they've been, I mean, they send me emails. I've been watching you for 30 years, you know, okay, yes. And uh, they're, you know, it's, um, it's good that, that we're able to continue. Really, there's a lot more to tell about Italian food, as you know. So I could do another 30 years if I lived that long, but uh, it's been received very well. And um, this time, what we did with the 30th season is that, uh, we decided to do it in front of a live audience in a cooking school. Cause you know, you have to change yourself around every now and then you can't be doing the same thing. You got to reinvent yourself. So I thought, why don't we do it in, in a cooking school in front of a live audience? So um, 
we went to a school called La Scuola Culinaria, which is actually here in New Hampshire. And we had a live audience and we did the shows and we invited some of the guests who were there. This was during the pandemic. That's when these shows were filmed. And we had to be really careful. You know, we could only allow so many people in. They had to wear masks. They had to sit far apart. You know, when they came up to to work with me, they had to keep their, it was crazy. But but we did it. And um, so it was a little bit different than what we're normally doing. So now I'm thinking for our 31st season, John and Pat, I want to go to Italy with you and just cook on location. I'm in. I'm in. Sounds good to us. Yeah, I'm I mean, in. What an honor that would be. Yeah, we'll do yeah, it in a heartbeat. We got to get our own van. You know, we really need our own van. So we got to talk about this when we're not on. Oh, John, don't. I would have it painted like that. the Sicilian Caruzza. We'd yeah, have, of course, yeah. that's, what, that's what we're going to wind up in Sicily. I'll just tell you that to begin with. Yeah, sure. Nothing wrong with that, Pat. You know, it's funny. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was thinking about you because, you know, like you said, 30 years and all of these cookbooks, and we're going to talk in a minute about your newest cookbook, which is a really interesting topic that I'm very curious about. But I was in Sicily and speaking to some of the team that we were working with that was filming. They'd never really explored Italy too, too thoroughly. So I was kind of giving them what I could as a primer on the different regions to sort of say, okay, you mm-hmm. know, here's it. And we started looking at regions that have been neglected culinarily. Oh, you know, yeah. Abruzzo and Basilicata. Right. And places Marque. that people don't. Yeah. But yeah. People, uh, Marque, another great right. example. People don't really. Go there. Nobody really has done those deep dives into those places even now, you know. Well, we have. We've, yeah. We have filmed in Abruzzo and the Marche, Basilicata, the places that nobody goes. I mean, everybody goes to the big three, you know, Rome, Venice, and Florence, and they think they've seen Italy. Yeah. You know, they've seen the tourist Italy, like Pat was talking about, but the real Italy are those small towns like Umbria, the hill towns. Yeah. When we were in the hill towns, that's, that's the real Italy. Is there anywhere that you, in all these years between filming and writing, feel like you haven't actually explored to the depth you'd like to? Yes, Friuli. Really? But I'm going. Yeah, Friuli. But I'm going there in the fall. I'm going to take a group to Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. So it's, you know, I'm doing my research now. But yeah, that's, you know, the real German kind of part of Italy. Uh, Heavy food, uh, you know, meat-based. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting. So yeah, Friuli is the only place I haven't been. I've been everywhere else. Wow. One one region left to go. That's amazing. Yeah, one region left to go. That's going to be fascinating because their food is so fascinating. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Yeah, all kinds. Of, I have a friend who's Friulan. Um, they. I have multiple friends who are Friulan. It's kind of like the Austro-Hungarian Empire meets Italy. Yes, <laughs> that's right. You it's really, know. what it is? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's heavy food. You know, a lot of cabbage. Uh, grains, um, coarse breads, those kinds of things, meat, um, you know, stews, those kinds of things. You all those heavy sausages and stews, and I like that stuff. That's for you, yeah. yeah. But you've been in every region, and so has Pat, right? No, I haven't. I've missed no, a I, few. I, have, I missed a few. Yeah. The, the, the top one I never went to was Calabria. You've oh, never been to Calabria? Oh. No, it's just oh, I, I've driven gosh, past Pat. it. I've driven around it. That's my great shame. Yeah. I've never wow. done Calabria. Mm-hmm. But when well, we do can... Calabria, it's going to be big. I've saved the best for last. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, we'll start there with our van. How's That'd that? That'd be great. No, I, I would love, love to do Calabria. John oh, is in. John, yeah, get the van tonight. John, get on top of this. I would like to. I would like to be the the test audience, the the uh, the diners 
when Marianne gets her hands on some of those tropea red onions. Because to me, oh yeah, nothing better. Yeah, than those. that's right. Those red onions from tropea. I talk about those in the book actually, and of course the hot peppers. I mean, yeah. you can't can't do Calabria without talking about the hot peppers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I found a farm in New York that sells. I guess they're the varietal of tropea onions. Obviously, they're grown in New York, but mm-hmm. they went to the farmer's market, and they were not cheap. They were like, you know, yeah. like 4 or $5 an onion. Mm-hmm. 4 or $5 an onion. But you never had these, Pat. These are the best onions. They're so good, you could cook them under salt like you would a fish and just eat them raw. They're so sweet. Yeah, so, that's I mean, it. There's no onion on the planet like this. And yeah. they're the only onions they say that you can cut without any tears. I don't know what that means. That's not true. <laughs> that's not true. No, that, that's a Calabrese myth. Okay, no, good. that's not true. Well, I didn't <laughs> At least get to, for me. I didn't get to find out because I bought them. I put them in the on the on the counter, and you know, Nicole and I both working. We were thank God by the grace of God able to find an Italian nanny, this lady uh-huh. Alma, and she's the Ooh. greatest. So we have this Tuscan. We've oh. another Tuscan woman in my house now, and uh-huh. uh, I came home one day. I was all excited. I was going to make macaroni with the onions. And they were gone. I said, Alma, what happened to the onion? She said, oh, the baby really wanted them. I said, you really turned this kid Italian. She had about $30 worth of tropea onions in her in her lunch. But yeah, yeah. yeah, it was good. It was you really got good. the best nanny. Oh, my God. We're so blessed. She's the nicest lady. Yes, I have met her on several occasions. Jesus, she's such you, a You hit the gold standard of nannies. Absolutely. Yeah, we're very lucky. She's a very nice lady. Very, very nice. It also brings me to the the topic of the newest book, which I'm genuinely excited to not only read, but to talk to you about today, Marianne, because it's something that's really been on my mind the past couple of months. Your newest book coming out in a matter of days yeah. is uh, November 15th. It comes out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. November 15th is Chow Italia plant harvest cook. Yep. And you're taking all the readers through the seasonal home vegetable garden, yep. focusing on growing tips and uh, then how to kind of return to the kitchen yep. with these items. And, and I'm, I'm now a suburbanite as of a couple months ago, and I have a plot of land ready for a garden, and I have realized I have no clue how to seed things, when to start them, what grows every year, what doesn't. So what inspired this, and and what kind of tips are we going to get out of it? Oh, my God. Well, this book is for you then. Oh, well, what inspired this was, you know, this book was written, took two years to write. And I wrote it during the pandemic because during the pandemic, we could not film anything. Mm. So I thought, hey, this is a good opportunity for me to write a book based on the Chow Italia Garden, because if you've been watching our shows, as I know you have religiously, um, we do two episodes in each series that we've done in the garden. So kind of like the concept of dirt to dinner, you know, how, Mm. how do you how do you get this these great vegetables. So this book is very simple. You don't need a degree in, you know, agriculture in order to understand how to plant if you want to. But what I what this book is, is like a dual purpose book. It, it'll tell you gardening tips on Italian varieties that are the most popular. And it has 120 recipes that you can uh, use without even having a garden. If you don't, you always have access to your farmer's market, your grocery store, a community garden, whatever it is. Plus, I tell you, you know, if you're in Italy, look up because as concentrated as Italy is in the city, people will always manage to have a pot or two on their balcony where they're growing everything from olive trees to tomatoes, basil. So, you know, this is in our DNA to want to grow things, but you don't have to. This is, this book is for anybody who just loves vegetables. So when I wrote it, I decided, well, I will teach you about how to plant vegetables and I'll give you 
about 120 recipes thereabouts on how to utilize these vegetables in your cooking. So that's that's how the book came about. But the other reason I did it, I can't take credit totally for this book because I have to tell you that Gaetano, my husband, he is the master gardener. Absolutely. And we have had a garden since he was in medical school. Now that's going back a few years. <laughs> so no, whatever it was, wherever we were, we had something. We had either pots, we had a little plot, we had, you know, we borrowed a neighbor's dirt mm. to, to grow things. And now our garden is 30 by 60. And this past year, we put in 70 tomato plants. Wow. We had right now we were harvesting our second crop of lettuce. We put in 100 uh, extra lettuce plants to get us through to December. And everything I've learned about seedlings and true leaves and where to plant and how to plant and what zone you're in. All that information is in the book, but I have to credit my husband, you know, for teaching me all those things. And I tell you in the introduction, everything I know about gardening, I learned from my husband, Gaetano. He is a maestro. That's for sure. He is yeah. the unsung hero of Chow Italia. He <laughs> oh, is the Pat. He's I the wouldn't girl. put it that way. <laughs> but Are people, you kidding me? But I mean, <laughs> in the sense that we know, because we know you, we know yeah, him. But the, know him, yeah. the, honor, the, the average person who tunes in, yeah. Right. Like my mother who's doing ironing and watches you and stuff like that. If yeah. they don't know you because your husband is like, a, um, for those who know him, he's like a quiet giant. Yeah. Like a, a quiet, a quiet gastronomic giant who's there in the background. Yeah. And on the regular day to day viewers, yeah. those who know you and who are intimate followers of the show, they know Dr. Guy. But for the regular viewers, you have to know that this is really the dynamic duo of Italian America. That's very true. You know, oh. it's like the it's like Ferdinand and Isabella, <laughs> I and Marianne. They're like the power couple. They're the power couple. They're like, yeah. what's his name? What's the prince in England? <laughs> William and Harry? No, oh. William and Kate. <laughs> William and Kate of Italian American gastronomy. I didn't want to say Charles and Diana. That didn't go too well. But the William and Kate, <laughs> you know, maybe the Philip and the Elizabeth. And that's Lord. why I'm, I think this is fantastic because. All of Dr. Guy's, all the years he's put into yeah. the excellence of gardening, it's like your genius and his genius get to marry. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think this is a great book. That's why everybody's go out and get this book. Yeah, that's, it, it's, it's a cooperation between the two of us. And I had to rely on him a lot, too. You know, I always fact-checked everything. I said, well, now, how many days does it take for artichokes to grow? Because actually, one year, I always based the garden on what I was going to do on TV. So I said, Guy. This is what I need you to grow for me. And I said, this year I need artichokes. He said, are you crazy in New Hampshire? You can't grow artichokes, but God bless it. He did grow them, globe artichokes. This was, it was fantastic when I saw it. I said, oh my God, look at these artichokes. But you know, there's a, there's a system to doing it. That was a difficult vegetable to grow, but the book is full of common vegetables that anybody can grow. You know, you got your lettuces, your eggplants, your tomatoes, your cherry tomatoes. I even tell you about the pianolo tomatoes which grow at the base of Mount Vesuvius for which you can get the seeds but what one thing I wanted to make clear to people is I I know people who have gardens and they'll say to me you know I grew San Marzano this year and I say no you didn't you grew a plum tomato oh no no I grew San Marzano no you didn't because San Marzano plum tomatoes can only grow in San Marzano that's a DOP product. You can get San Marzano's in a can if you know what you're looking for and it says DOP and it has a European emblem on it, but you're growing a plum tomato. And yes, San Marzano is a type of plum tomato, 
but it's a specific type because it can only be grown in San Marzano. You're growing a New Jersey plum tomato. You don't have the terroir that we have in Italy, right? Yeah. So it's not going to taste the same. You can come close, but you're not going to get that exact taste because you don't live there. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, people miss, that's like the, the tropea onions, right? Like, yeah. I'm sure it's the same variety of onion. I'm sure, it, had, had my right. young daughter not eaten it, I'm sure I would have found it to be a great taste, but it's not going to be the same as you pull out of the ground in tropea and the, you know, exactly. think about the, the lemons of Sorrento and yeah, how much of it exactly. is the sea mist and the soil right. and, you know, it's, it's yes. yeah. it all impacts it. But like you say, you can, you know, that's a question I, I had for you and I'm, I'm sure it'll be in the book, but if you can give us a preview I always find when I'm in Italy, I you know, you, you get a great product, you go to a market. If you're there for a length of time or you have a place where you can cook, I try to save seeds when I can. Yes. Is that fruitful or is it really better to sort of buy them professionally? I mean, how, how I mean, just, viable... to, just to clarify, John has never brought a seed home. John no, collects it. Oh, right. No, you, sorry, no yes. you haven't, John. Yes, I have not. Right. John I have, not. Has I have never thought ever, about it. I have thought, thought about, about it. Yeah. it. And then after <laughs> careful consultation with, with legal counsel, he yes. has left all the seeds on the table in Italy and not I one have. has ever come home. Yes, that's true. But if well, I were to have, if, if, if one were to fall in my was, shoe, if one was if having perhaps fall in your, got, yeah, yeah, stuck in my shoe or in my pocket, by yeah, what what would be, how useful would it be? It would be very useful. We've done it. So when I was in Sicily in May to answer this question, and all these people with me, and we were at a winery, and they did, you know, a nice antipasto spread. And on the table were cherry tomatoes, Sicilian cherry tomatoes. And they were absolutely fabulous. So I said to everybody, I said, you know what, why don't you just squeeze a few of those seeds out, put them on a napkin, let them dry in your hotel room, take them home. So we all did this. My brother happened to be on this trip, and he's a big, huge gardener. Uh, My lawyer was on this trip, actually. And so he took the seeds home. We took the seeds home. My brother emails me. These are fabulous. Here's a picture of the cherry tomatoes. The attorney, great tomatoes. Guy, zip. He gets nothing. For some reason, they didn't germinate. But we've done it. But, you know, you can bring seeds home, packaged seeds. I'm sure you've done this. I tell people, you know, one way to really understand the region that you're in, that you're visiting, is to go to an outdoor market. An yeah. outdoor market is going to tell you everything about the people, what they eat, their culture. And in the market, there are lots of seeds for sale, right? So you can buy any kind of Italian varieties, uh, seeds. Yes. So we have brought seeds home. And right now, my brother sent me some of his seeds from the Sicily trip. So we planted those. And so now we're still getting little cherry, to, little Sicilian cherry tomatoes. I have them enclosed in a little like greenhouse. So we always, that's one of the big things we look to do when we're in Italy is to get the seeds, bring the seeds home. We got the big kaguza, you know, the uh, the very long, skinny kaguz yeah. um, uh, uh, that uh, Sicilians like to candy that as well as make soup out of it. 
they use the leaves for soup and then they'll use the the zucchini you know for for sautés or for stews or whatever but they also candy it so it's almost like you know like citron I've never seen that before. Oh, yeah. And then they'll put it in, in cakes and such. When I was uh, at Regaliali, which is the uh, big wine estate in the center near in Caltanissetta, the uh, winemaker there was telling me about what they do with the, the kagutsa. And that surprised me, too. But they candy it and then they use it in, you know, fruit cakes. I that you just taught me something about a region that I, I yeah. pride myself on knowing. And I was going to ask you, actually, it was my next question about Kakutsa, because uh, one of our listeners who is uh, in our new neighborhood sent a picture to the membership group. And uh, it was his Kakutsas that he grew. And I, I've always intended to try to do it. You have to grow those hanging, okay. right? Those up above the oh, ground, right, right? They, yeah. yes they they have to be yeah you grow them so that they're growing you know they're they're hanging they're heavy and then you, if you let them grow forever they're going to coil themselves around like a snake on the ground they can be huge i mean they can be as tall as a, a, a rake handle so uh i try to get them when they're you know not that big because as i tell you in the book when you harvest vegetables like eggplant and zucchini and cucumbers you don't want them huge you want them small that's where the best flavor is because the larger they get the more seeds they have the drier they are and as an example eggplant most people you know go through that whole salting thing right you got to salt put the layers put the brick on top make sure you let it sit till all those bitter juices come out i do none of that because i'm not starting with big huge eggplants I'm starting with eggplant that are no more than like eight inches long. Huh. Same for zucchini. So I tell you, don't let them get huge. Okay. So, you know, there's an old Italian proverb. We had a little Italian guy who used to help us in the garden, Marino. And, you know, he would come in and he'd start singing Italian songs. And when I was in the garden, he'd say to me, you know, Mariana, you got to have a dead man here. I said, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> He said, the garden needs a dead man. I said, why? He said, because he's always here watching, you know, looking. (laughs) He said, so you always got to be here because, you know, you let something get away from you and bingo, you know, it's no good. It overgrows. It overgrows. You you don't think about that. You know, we have this American mentality of like when you go to the supermarket, everything's got to be perfectly colored and polished and huge and the bigger the better. And yeah. Oh, no, you know, last year we grew the Genovese tomato, the ridged looking tomato. And people would say to me, there's something wrong with that tomato. It doesn't look like a tomato. <laughs> you know, if, if that's the mindset people are in, if it's not round yeah. and fully red, you know, they don't want it. Same is true for uh, lettuce that we grew called um, freckles. Now, freckles is, a, is a, a head lettuce that has little red spots all over it. And I used it on the show one year. A woman wrote in. She said, why are you using rusted old lettuce? Uh-huh. You know, no, no, no. It's called freckles because it has these. It's pretty. It's pretty in a salad bowl. So in the salad section of the book, I tried to introduce people to things other than romaine, which is a fine lettuce. But there are lots of other lettuces that would make a uh, salad bowl much more interesting. Yeah. So we talk about that in the book. There's give you a variety of Italian varieties that you can find the seeds for. It's also interesting that you reference uh, the idea of like the kagutsu, you can cook the leaves and, you know, yeah. we also, you know, uh, yeah. 
squash leaves and pumpkin leaves yeah. and they're edible, you know, and they're, right. and they're delicious. And right. we don't, we've lost a lot of that, that, that beans and yeah. greens mentality, you know? Exactly. Yeah. That was another reason for the book because, you know, during the pandemic, I think people started to discover the kitchen and then they started cooking more, right? Cause they were home, they were confined. So what are we going to cook? So people started thinking, well, we got to eat healthy, right? We've got to eat healthy. So part of this book is, to encourage you to eat more vegetables and the recipes in the book cover the whole gamut. So it's not just vegetables for vegetables sake. There are vegetables to go with anipasto. There are vegetables with fish, vegetables with meat, vegetables with just, you know, pizza, vegetables with casseroles. Even in the dessert section, we have herbs that make beautiful desserts. So we tried to cover the gamut, not just thinking, well, it's a vegetable book for vegetables sake. These vegetables are used in many different ways. It's funny because um, this is before COVID even a friend of my wife called me and asked me about her basil plant. She was trying to grow basil in one of these dirt free, you know, modern house things. And and I said, to be honest, I don't know, but I, I put her in touch with Pat and Pat, you know, had the answer and he, Pat had the you. answer. What is it? <laughs> I don't remember what she was even what? asking. Something about like uh, it, the, the letting the flowers grow or taking the flowers, something like that. It My was grandmother sad. was very obsessed with um, not letting a basil plant flower. It, she's absolutely right because once you let it flower, you don't have the flavor. Yeah, that's that is true. I didn't know if that was a an old wives' tale. She was no. obsessed about breaking off the uh, flower branches. Well, she's smart. Yeah. No. No. And you, and you know what the best way is to prevent basil leaves from going limp? You know how you'll get a bunch of basil, you bring it home, you stick it in a jar of water on your counter. Next day, it's like all flopped over. It's all limp. Well, one day, Guy and I harvested a lot of basil, put it in a, a little bit of water on the kitchen counter. And then we took plastic bags, just regular you know, plastic bag that you would get from the grocery store and put it over the top of the basil. Believe it or not, this keeps the basil leaves looking fresh for a week or more. It's unbelievable. I think it's somehow a symbiotic relationship between the leaves and the gas or whatever it is in the bag, because mm. it's, try it. It's, it's, yeah. it's non-fail. It's, it just works. Because basil, basil does not like water on its leaves doesn't like to be cold so you don't want to put it in the refrigerator because that definitely will make it go limp but try this trick where you just you know stick a, a a bunch of basil in a vase of water just a little water and put this plastic bag over the top of it and see That's what interesting. happens yeah it's like a self-contained environment yeah like a little greenhouse yeah but that that's what i thought of as i made this call to pat you know i said to myself people of my generation younger generations we we've lost you know we don't have the same live with your nona like pat did yeah. or i did and yeah. you know you learn these things by doing or you mm-hmm. so you know my mom is a fantastic gardener with an unbelievable green thumb but she lived down the block from her nona who my great-grandmother would splice seeds and she created all these peach plum trees this hybrid yeah, that, you know all these amazing things she used to do grafting yeah. and stuff and you know if you don't have that anymore it's like starting from scratch and it's intimidating, honestly, because, you know, you think it's as simple as put a seed or a seedling in the ground and you get, but you don't know these things like cutting the flowers off the basil or when mm-hmm. to uh, trim and, you know, people mm-hmm. don't know. So it, mm-hmm. it's a, it's instructional 
to have a book like this from a resource like you and Dr. Guy for sure. They, they found a um, a hoe that's still used in Basilicata and Salerno. It's like a regional hoe, and it's the same hoe the Romans used. Wow. Yeah. They found the same hoes in, in Roman mm. um, excavations. Mm. I mean, that tells you, if you really want to talk about passing down traditions. Yeah. I mean, when you're using equipment that was designed 2,000 years ago without knowing it, <laughs> that really shows you how from generation to generation, uh, an agricultural literally was able to pass on that kind of knowledge that you just get firsthand. We think we're so smart, but, you know, he's right. Things repeat themselves. So what the ancient Romans did sometimes is not such a surprise to us, right? Yeah. I, I was thinking about that, too, because uh, I was reading an article. I'm going to forget the name of the plant about an ancient Roman culinary herb that was like the most beloved of all of the herbs. Big, like uh, almost looks like a, an artichoke stalk. And then the flowers are these little tiny yellow flowers in clusters. And it was so famed in the Roman world that it was on the coinage from Libya. Oh. And uh, it was thought to be extinct from, from overuse in Roman times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but recently this study was conducted in a, in a remote part of Turkey. And they think that they've actually identified some of it that has survived that was brought over with the Greeks. So mm-hmm. make a long story short, they're now testing it with all these chefs against the written records of what it tasted like, what it made you feel like, what the smell was like mm-hmm. compared to other things. And, they, and they're coming close to thinking that they, it may actually have been saved by accident. Huh. But it dawned on me, even then, in Roman times, we were losing staple varietals of the way we eat. And I, I love the idea, and we talk about this on the show a lot, like there are a lot of Italian-Americans who maintain family gardens or pass on heirloom varietals that came from Italy that no longer exist in Italy. And that's something that I don't think people think about, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, John, that was the, when um, I can't remember the name of it either, but that was what gave birth to garlic that was used by the Romans. And I'm trying to figure out what it was called. And John, I'm stunned because I, for years have thought, this is the first time I'm hearing this. I thought for years that one time they would find it somewhere. It was an herb. Um, and this is terrible. I can't remember what it was, but the Romans used it for what we would use garlic today. And they over harvested it. It was really the production area was North Africa. And even when they knew they were over harvesting it, they never kind of held back because it, it grew wild. It was a wild growing plant. And they basically knowingly farmed it or, or gathered it in, into extinction. But when that disappeared, that's when um, garlic was introduced as as the replacement. To take the replacement. Yeah, I'm looking it up. I'm looking at it right now. It's called Silphium. Is that yeah. what it is? There's another yeah. Roman name. What's the Roman name for it? I think it begins with an L. Yeah, but it's apparently it was worth its weight in gold and um, by the end, obviously, because it was so loved. But yeah, you think about so much of the stuff that we, you know, we take for granted, even if it wasn't a famed varietal, there are places, particularly in Italy, I mean, all over the world, but for our cuisine in Italy, where, you know, you never know that there might be some families or a little community that still has a varietal of something that nobody else has seen. Yeah, that that's an heirloom. That's an heirloom. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that it's good to it's good to know where your seeds come from, how they've been sourced. And I don't mean mm-hmm. even in terms of ethics or anything like that, but just, you know, knowing what varietal you have, cataloging it, knowing what's in your garden and what you're passing down, because it's it's. That genetic variety means so much to humanity, to how we eat, to how we produce food, to how how food can be produced in the future. Because when you lose that variety, you start to lose everything. That's right. I mean, you can see that in our own uh, culture here. You know, for instance, I was saying to Guy 
the other day. Corn doesn't taste right to me. No. It doesn't, it's, you know, I don't think we really know what corn should taste like because it's been so, it's so, it's been so hybridized, right? It doesn't taste it, like anything. It doesn't, it doesn't taste like any, even fruits to me don't taste right. The no. peaches don't taste like the ones my mother used to, you know, put up the, the, the prunes, the grapes, nothing tastes right anymore. Yeah. And I think it's because of what we have done genetically to so many foods, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have gone, you right. It's an Italian American family. It's safe to say I ate my share of tomatoes in every possible manifestation for most of my life. And for some reason, the past like 10 years, I just don't eat tomatoes anymore raw or, you know, in sat because they don't have any taste. They're white, mealy, mushy, you know, they, they don't. That's even... why you got to grow your own. So I got to grow right. your own. You got to grow yes. your own. Cause it's, yeah. I, I grew the Sorrento. Um, the Sorrento has its own tomato. Yes. And it was specifically bred. It's specifically bred to have a few of the latte mozzarella. Wow. Mm-hmm. They marry so well. It's a salad tomato. Cause I think Americans don't realize in Italy, they have multiple everything for multiple uses. So there's tomatoes you cook with. There's tomatoes you use for That's tomato sauce. Right. There's salad tomatoes. That's right. There is not just the one tomato. And when you eat the Sorrento tomato and a piece of mozzarella and basil, and you're like, I understand exactly why this goes together. Mm-hmm. And you can't get that same taste from, from another, another type of tomato. No. How do we always get back to food on this podcast? No matter, <laughs> we could have an undertaker and the conversation would go back to food. <laughs> I mean, we have food people, it goes back to food. So it makes us, it's what makes us go. Is that it? Is that the Italian yeah. in us? It's not just the fuel for the body, it's the fuel for the soul. Because, yeah. see, Cavaliere, I intermittent fast like twice a week. For, and I, because I, it's, it's healthy and I, I, I yeah. to make a long story short, he always books a food episode on an intermittent fasting day. Oh jeez! Oh, like he wanna, says, well, "What am I? What record. are we going to book?" Oh, let's, the, the let's mythology. Put him on. Just for the record, Pat and Stephanie book the shows together. I don't book the shows, so he he now he's throwing me under the bus. You see, this is what he does. I'm the villain because oh, yeah. everybody loves him. You know, we announced we got the we new space it. in Little Italy, right? I'm going to mark and, on our common calendar and, when uh, when it's a fasting day. I, I'm going crazy right now. I'm I'm thinking about Bulend. I'm, I'm going out of my mind. It's yeah, the worst see, day. I, I get villain. Uh, let me say this on the record: We have Marianne, who's a friend, <laughs> who's known you a long time, and we, I, you know, we're we're building this studio in Little Italy now. Yeah. Uh, I hope you're going to have a kitchen in there because I want to cook there. That's oh a great idea. So let me tell you what that I got, Marianne. This is interesting. I'm in. If you do, <laughs> I, I'm in. If there's was, a kitchen, I was just I'm looking in. at this when I renovated the house that we're in now. When we moved in here up in Westchester, the woman we bought it from was in her 90s, and when her and her husband moved into the house. They brought with them a late 30s magic chef gas stove, and it's magnificent. And she used it until she sold the house to us, and Uh she taught me how to use it with the matchsticks. And, you know, she basically said, like, um, I guess she assumed we were going to keep using it. And we we brought in a new stove, um, Mm -hmm. but I just couldn't get rid of this thing. So I I put it in the garage, and it's it's huge. It's this Mm. gorgeous, not a chip on it, porcelain stove. And I was looking the other day and thinking, like, you know, it'd be great if we can get it into the space as, like, a little test filming kitchen because, yeah. Oh, it would be fabulous. Don't get rid of that stove because, believe me, they don't make them the way they used to. No, I started yeah. looking into it. People, yeah. people buy these things refurbished for, like, 15, 16 grand. Oh, yeah. Oh. And so that would be great in the space yeah. and create, like, a little 
home kitchen, like a basement kitchen, you know, right, something right, yeah. casual. We'd love yeah. to have you come cook. See, this I can work with. Yeah, I'm OK with it because I don't want to be in a studio with nothing to do and just sit there because I got to put I'm like, look at my hands. Like, like right now, I'm looking at teapots because I like tea as I, I, I multitask. And I got to sit there with my hand like I'm, I got sister. I have like one of the nuns I had in school. I doesn't have to sit there at the desk with my hands folded. What am I going to do? I can't gesticulate. Can we just announce for the audience that you and I are in negotiations for your contract of what it what needs to be for you to be in there? Because people are really nervous that Pat's going to leave the show if we're recording in person again. Oh, no, that can't happen. Can't happen. That, that, can't happen. That, that, that I don't want to see how nice this is. We're on Zoom. <laughs> You're on, the Cavaliere's on. I'm in here. I have shorts on, a t-shirt. I have a sweatshirt over that. I'm not dressed. I'm comfortable. Listen, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put another demand. I want you to hang suprasad and dried sausage off the ceiling. Done. Easy. That's easy. Yeah. Uh, but we should make it together in the windows. Yeah, lard, do. you know, the lard yeah. though. We have that hanging. Gazakaval hanging. That, yeah, then but, I, but I could you, reach up and grab a suprasad in the middle of the show and just start cutting it. Right. But if you're gonna make it, you better know what you're doing. You don't want oh, to we, got, oh, we, we, we got a master butcher. We have Rafael okay. Vitali, who's a paisan of mine from okay. San Marco Cilento. Yeah. He started in, at, as a butcher in Italy at nine with his father. Uh, all right. Well, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, okay, he knows good, what he's doing. Good. You know, Marianne, you know how you know I'm, Pat's I'm a botch, great... I'm great... botulism paranoid. So yeah, yes, he he's a great devotee of yours because we just spoke about this on one of our episodes. The first time Pat ever reached out to Rosella uh, before they were super close friends like now yeah. was to write her a letter about uh, making suprasata on her show and the fear of botulism. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a very detailed well, letter. A, that's so, a very real thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. You, that's a, that's a very careful. Yeah. Home. You know, you really yeah. need to know what you're doing. If you know, I mean, my limit is making homemade Italian sausage, but that gets cooked in a frying pan. Yeah. You're not yeah. hanging that and, and, and curing it. You know, you got to have the right conditions for that besides knowing what you're doing. So I, I you know, that's not my thing. Wouldn't that be the best Italian murder mystery? <laughs> like Diane Giovinazzo or Adriana Trigiani's got to write a book. Or someone who poisoned probably an, a, a cousin fighting over a house. <laughs> Grandma dies. And they're both named Tony because they named it after their grandfather. The two Tonys are fighting over right. grandma's house and one poisons the other one with a botulism laden sausage. Don't be not so if you're out there. This is this is Trigiani. Well, we could do oh. like what was it, murder she wrote? We could do yeah. the Italian version. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be quite a show. Oh my gosh! Yeah, but it, yeah. those are the kind of things I'm I'm really looking forward to doing and doing on camera, and you know, bringing in Ralph to teach us how to make sausage. I mean, he's done mm-hmm. so many amazing things. And oh, yeah, his organica is his organica not like the greatest thing ever. Yeah, I, I I never had that before in my life or since. He's the only person I know who makes it. But it's it got good. what? It's got. Yeah, I can't tell you the secret. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. It's got. I'm it's gonna got see a bunch him, I'm of... gonna see him later today. I'll be I'll be. There. I, I got the secret. Yeah. I can tell you all off with air. Maybe we can make him use the secret when he if he's if he tapes personally. But that could if be the if official it, dried sausage of the podcast. But I might I might get that poison dry. I might get that botulism sausage if I let that secret out. You know his marinade. You know I had to take an oath before I saw the marinade. Of course, I had to sign like an NDA. Marianne, do you have any recipes that you keep secret after all these years? 
No. no. You know, I mean, you know, on our website, we give you, there's 1500 recipes. You know, you know, it's not like a lot of some of these other websites where you get five recipes for free, then you got to pay for everything else. That's never been the situation with Chow Italia. There's 1500 recipes out there at, you know, that I've made that you can have. I don't keep anything secret. Why should I? I mean, I'm in the business of sharing, right? So are you. Because you're a teacher, really. You are you are yeah. by vocation and and training yeah. a teacher yeah, first and foremost. Yeah, yeah. I, I know a lot of people who yeah. get really wiggy about sharing family recipes and what's in things. And oh, that's crazy. You know, because yeah, they're gonna they're gonna die someday. That's right. The recipes <laughs> die. <laughs> they're gonna die someday. That's right. From someone who has spent a lot of time in Marion, that is that is the, your secret. That is your genius. You are yeah. still a teacher. That's why yeah. your show is on a whole other level. That's why I think God made you a teacher. I don't think a lot of people know that. You were a grammar school, fourth grade teacher. No, I no, correct? I was a high school a teacher. A high school teacher. I taught high school history. And you know what? I'm still a teacher, even though my classroom has gotten much bigger. Sure, you, you know, have like, a huge class. You have the have biggest huge, classroom in the world. You that's do. right. So, but you know, when you think about Italian regional food, you're teaching people about that. You're not only teaching them about the food, you're teaching them about the people, the culture, the folklore. Yeah. All of that has been part of Chow Italia over these years, you know, because we're not just talking about the how to make, you know, Italian sausage. We're talking about, you know, where does the best Italian sausage come from in Italia? And we have to say, right, what is it? I don't know. I'm dying to hear what you think now. I, I, if I don't say San Mango Chulento, they'll throw me out of the club. <laughs> no, I'll be out of the club the... tonight. I got, I got, I, that's my answer. I can't say anything else. I don't know if I could. Okay, you tell me. Norcha, of course. Norcha. Really? The Norcino was born to make sausage, and that's why they're called uh, a Norcino, is somebody who makes sausage. And in Norcha, they have developed this art to a new level, a, a, a new art form. But they've been keeping this tradition alive for centuries. So if you want to really know about pork sausage, you want to go to Norcha for sure. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, there's so many different ways to do stuff, you know, and everybody that I talk to, I learn different traditions and recipes. That, that's what yeah. I love about doing this show is and, and, and expanding out with the video stuff, which is, you know, you get it, right? 30 years on, yeah. on TV. Yeah. It's great to have a cookbook. You could do as much history and context as you want. There's also something about watching somebody do it, you know? Mm-hmm. It adds a level. It does. It does, yeah. But it's also great when you can teach somebody to do it. You know, that's the great satisfaction of teaching somebody something about Italian regional food that they had no concept of. And now, you know, they're interested and they're going to do it. I mean, that's that's the satisfaction of doing this show is opening people's minds to the fact that you forget that spaghetti and meatball mentality, you know, and you realize how, how regional Italy is. We could go on for another 30 years. Yeah, you really. That's the best thing. I, I, I my big fear when we started, when John, when I was giving John 18,000 reasons why I didn't want to do the podcast. And my fear was running out of content. And I've realized. Oh, no. We'll never, never ever run out of content. Never run out of content. Never. Uh-uh. Yeah. Yep. I, it's, we've been doing this together going three or almost four years since we came on board. Yeah. And we still have, thanks to Stephanie, the Bible that I sat down, me, Pat, Rosella, Dolores, Anthony, and said, okay, let's just dump a bunch of topics. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've even touched maybe a third 
of the initial topics we wrote down because so much stuff comes up over time and guests. Exactly. And, yeah, it's just, it's amazing, really. We could do daily and do it for the next thousand years and we would still have a long list yeah. of, of people and topics that we didn't even scratch. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of Italy. Do you think, the Norwegian, the, do you think yeah. the Norwegian American podcast has these issues? <laughs> I hope they have episodes a long on fruitful... fish. <laughs> well, when it comes to food, we definitely could do it. I want to do a joint sure. episode with them celebrating Bacala. That's their great gift. To yes, they, because, no, yes, they <laughs> taught the Italians how to do that, how to how to dry the Bacala. That came from them. Yes. I know that. We could yes. have the Italian-American friendship episode. The Italian-American, Norwegian-American friendship episode. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. big bacala is our theme. How I had no idea. Bacala? I didn't even think about that, really. Yeah, you know, and, and, and a lot of the recipes that have come over here that have, that, that have been kind of like transposed. For instance, you know, do you know where the largest segment of Sicilians live in the United States? Take a guess. New Orleans. He gets the prize. Uh, New Orleans. And when they came... These Sicilians to New Orleans, of course, they went there because they were fishermen. They were, you know, net uh, menders. They were shipbuilders. But they also brought with them a lot of their food culture. Think of the biggest thing in New Orleans that the Sicilians brought. I know you know this. Mufalata. The mufalata. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And if you go to Sicily and you, you want to have a mufaletta, it's much different than the one that you will get in uh, New Orleans. It's similar, but it's not the exact same thing. But they're the ones who introduce that into New Orleans. So a lot of our food culture that we think is just strictly Italian is not. It's regional. Yeah. Different regions of Italy have influenced the food here in the States. That, that's my big passion for what we're doing with the greetings from Italian America, because just like you've spent 30 years and have another 30 to explore oh, yeah, right. 20, 20 regions of Italy, yeah, God, God spares, right? As my grandmother yeah. would say, uh, I find the regional cuisine of Italian America yeah. so fascinating because people don't think they think it's that, you know, one kind of red sauce cuisine that's got or the Olive Garden menu, whatever, you know. Yeah. But in in truth, every community, you know, Chopino in uh, San Francisco, the fish stew and uh, in, yeah. in New Orleans. Uh, John, varietals we, and, we were just blown away this summer by the spaghetti and the the fried chicken in Arkansas. Yeah, in Arkansas. N- none of well, us knew this. We prided no. ourselves. Spaghetti and fried chicken oh, together. It's good. Yes, in Tontytown, Arkansas. And, and it's a chicken. Well, I can say this. There's chicken in the meat sauce that they use. They've had the recipe uh-huh. for 120 years, uh-huh. whatever it is. But mm-hmm. I almost got left behind in Arkansas, let's say, because I started to list the ingredients they were putting into it. And they said, absolutely not. Nobody's ever heard this passed down mm-hmm. f- through the church. So, yeah. but, it's, but there is chicken in this sauce. And, and it's, you know, in this, like, um, bolognese almost. And it was fantastic. And Yeah. Because it's so Italian because... They were working, the Italian immigrants, in chicken processing plants. Mm-hmm. So there was an abundance mm-hmm. of chicken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they made the chicken work. And when they opened up restaurants, you had a very, you know, southern Confederate ancestor, you know, people who were there from the time of the Civil War in Arkansas, who their Sunday meal was fried chicken. So they would have a tomato sauce based uh, sauce that covered a, I guess, I mean, they call it spaghetti. I wouldn't call it spaghetti. It would be like a real thin tagliolini that's made on a on a pasta machine where it cuts it into real thin. It's almost square. It's the square shaped one, mm-hmm. and that's that's served as the side with the fried chicken. 
but it was fantastic. It was very gluttonous in the most beautiful sense of the word. Yes, it is. It was like something deep fried. It really, it was. And that, and I think, John, that goes to your point that, you know, there's, there's these Italian American gastronomic subcultures. Yes. That have all these, these local, I mean, New Jersey with the Italian hot dog. Yeah. There's an Italian hot dog. I didn't know that. There is. A, there's a, <laughs> a, I'll tell you this story. There was a woman from, I think she was from Avellino or Calabria. Rassiopi was her last name. She mm-hmm. had a hot dog truck in, I think it was Newark. Mm-hmm. And her husband during the depression used to invite his friends over on a Thursday night or a Saturday night to play cards. Mm-hmm. And they used to get a little bit too much to drink. And she, during the bad years of the depression, he would want her to serve sausage. So she'd have to make these big trays of sausage. And mm-hmm. she got annoyed one night because they had no money and it was a depression and the guys were drinking. So mm-hmm. she figured they're drunk enough. And she brought out hot dogs mm-hmm. served the way she would serve sausage with peppers and onions. And it's, and, and it's spicy. Mm-hmm. And they serve it in New Jersey in a half. And we call it pizza bread. I don't know what's called in the rest of America. It's like a round. Is that a New Jersey thing? I'm just seeing that now. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. Pizza bread. Pizza bread. It's a round. It's a loaf of Italian bread that's small. And it's the size of a pita round. Uh-huh. But it's risen. And then you cut it in half. And you kind of make a, po- a pita pocket out of uh-huh. the two halves. Uh-huh. And you fry the chopped up hot dogs. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're put into pieces. With um, peppers and onions. Now, that was a Newark Elizabeth dish. Mm. And in the 1970s, my grandfather went to go work for a company that was in the Elizabeth Union area. And my grandfather got onto it. My grandfather used to make it on a Saturday night. Wow. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't even a Jersey City thing, but he adopted it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love it. But that, that's, that's, that's the beauty of who we are. If you're in Arkansas, you work with chickens. If you're in Newark, you work <laughs> with hot dogs. And yeah. you make a beautiful thing out of it. You know, uh, that reminds me, one year when we were filming, we decided to film with the mayor of Boston, who at that time was Thomas Menino, a really great guy. Family was from Avellino, same area that you know, half of my family was from. So we were doing the Feast of the Seven Fishes. And I was asking myself, well, now, like, Mayor, what do you what do you have for the piece of some fish? Well, you know, they had swordfish and shrimp and, you know, pasta with uh, with the squid. And I said, do you know that in Italy, wherever I've been and I've asked, tell me about the feast of the seven fishes. My Italian friends tell me there is no such thing. No, it's American. That's an American idea that came with these immigrants who. On Christmas Eve, which was the Vigilia, and you couldn't have meat at that time, they would just make a bunch of dishes because that's what Italians do, right? I mean, it's not one thing for dinner. It's five or six. So this became where the idea of the seven fishes came from. It it wasn't a, a holiday that existed in Italy. It was circumstance because you ate fish, a variety of fish on Christmas Eve. And that morphed into, well, it's seven fishes because God took seven days to make the world. No, it's 12 fishes because we have 12 apostles. No, right. it's seven because we have, you know, the the uh, the sacraments, the seven sacraments. So uh, all of this got tacked on. And, and that's why nobody that I know in Italy has ever heard of the Feast of Seven Fishes. I am convinced one day they're going to find the article. This is my theory. I am convinced that someone who was not Italian in probably the New York, New Jersey area was writing an article in Christmas time in the 80s. Mm-hmm. 
And you know how uh, the problem with non-Italian or Italian-American journalists is that they'll say, well, this is an Italian tradition. And there's no such thing as an Italian tradition because every town and village is different. It's different. Yeah. Somebody started that spin because someone Mm -hmm. served seven or in their town, they did seven. And I'll tell you why, because I remember when it came out in the 80s and my mother, me and my grandmother, my grandmother goes, but what's the seven thing? And all of a sudden that became the thing. And we had this conversation and no one had ever heard of the seven fishes. Mm -hmm. And then like two years later, that was the required number. Yeah. Because my grandmother was Neapolitan, very superstitious. Mm -hmm. So someone had put in an article like it was good luck. And now my grandmother got worried we weren't doing something. My grandma was paranoid, (laughs) paranoid. And my mother, the horns, bad luck. (laughs) Someone said my grand, I I grew up, my grandmother used to say babies were ugly. Yeah. to keep the horns off right? and I was a kid and I just thought that you call babies ugly because if you call them beautiful they get the horns but my, my grandmother I remember us sitting around saying do we have to do this seven thing and where did it come from and are we going to have bad luck if we? and that's a real conversation the two things that changed our lives for the holidays in the 80s uh, or maybe it was the early 90s was the article on the seven fishes and it was the episode when, when news fried destrufally with the electric deep fryer mm-hmm. yeah. that changed their lives That's my grandmother stopped yeah because yeah. my grandmother had never seen an electric deep fryer my grandma's like oh instead of she was always paranoid of frying yeah. the truthfully on the stove uh-huh. and they went out and they bought the electric deep fryer and that i actually wrote an article about that about your chris that christmas and watching your episode when niaf had their magazine the festa mm-hmm. jamba the young people magazine mm-hmm. But those, those are two. That's why it all comes back to you, Cavaliere. These great memories. Yeah. Old <laughs> memories, new memories. Right. Seven fishes, Dr. Guy in the yeah. garden. You know, what's sad, though, is that even in Italy, the younger generation is losing all of this. I, I hate to say it, but, you know, I, I what I observed this time is, you know, the 20 and the 30 year olds, they're, they don't eat dinner at home anymore. No. I mean, I cook every day. You cook every day they're not home because they can't help it. I mean, they're, they've got to work. They got to, you know, two jobs because Italian government is taking 60% of your, your income, right. For taxes. So they can't make it. They got to both be working. So they're not home making tortellini and, and lasagna and meatballs and stuff like that. They're working. So what do they do? Supper time comes and they're at, at the bar. They're having the antipasto, you know, they're having, they're a salumi board. Yeah. This is dinner now, a salumi board yeah. and a glass of wine or whatever it is. They're with their friends. So even in Italy, a lot of these traditions are dying. They're dying. And that's why I feel privileged to be able to do what I have done. Because if you go to our website, you know we have the legacy library that houses these recipes. that They're, they're lost when the Nonas and the Zias die, the mamas are gone. This next generation doesn't have a clue, doesn't have a clue. For instance, at Easter this past year, I made the Abruzzese Sofione. Do you know what a Sofione is? Yes, it's no, kind of I like, don't. it's a it's a meatless pizza again. It's a cheese-based, am I right? It's no. a cheese-based pie, is that? <laughs> it's, yes, it is. In a way, it's a pie, but it's, it's a dessert, a pat. It's, it's a it's a dough where you drape over a a bunt pan, you know, a, a, a tube pan kind of thing. And in this, so you put this, you fit fit the dough into the pan, but you leave some overhanging the sides. And then the filling is a, a ricotta, sweetened ricotta with a citron and raisins, that kind of thing. And that goes in the center. Then you fold the outside edges 
of the dough towards the center, but it doesn't completely enclose it. So that's where the sofeone part comes because it means something that's poking through, mm. poking through the dough. This is a classic, classic Easter dessert from Abruzzo. But how many people know about it? Yeah. I decided to, to save it, to, to, you know, to make this on our show, tell the story of the Abruzzese Sofeone. And so now anybody who wants to know about that can go onto our website. They can access this free of charge and carry on that tradition if they want to. That's what's so great about being able to do this kind of stuff. You know what's the beautiful thing about Italy? What? I know people from Abruzzo who use the same word, but they make it savory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's They're true. probably from the enemy town. They probably hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> they're on two mountaintops and they no, put over right. a statue. They have a valley between them. Yeah, that's probably You're right. These words can be inner, you know, changed for different things. Uh, you know, the Sofeone could be a savory thing. Dude, that's the great thing about Italy. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That is the diversity. So the diversity. So, so, so it's a wealth. It's a wealth of diversity. Yeah. And just like the varietals in the garden, there's the varietals of recipes. And, mm. you know, as we hit up on our hour, Marianne, you mentioned the website. I know what most people out there know it, but just for the sake of the audience that might not, tell them how to get to the website and the book and uh, everything that's going on. Okay, so the website is ciaoitalia.com. You go there and find 1,500 recipes. You can hit 1,300 videos. There's information about our foundation, which I hope people will support because the foundation allows culinary students to go to college or to matriculate in a program in their high school where they are studying Italian cuisine. And we have given so many scholarships over the years to these potential students because we want them to carry on these traditions, these Italian traditions. And the other aspect of of the uh, foundation, of course, is to carry on this legacy library, fund this legacy library, so it will not be lost to time. Yeah. Now we're in our 30th season. We're looking ahead to our 31st. I'm going to do an episode with you and Pat in the basement kitchen with the stove. Love it. (laughs) And uh, the new book is out on November 15th. It's all about vegetables. I hope that uh, people will take a look at it, maybe give it as a Christmas present or just use it for your own information and cook at home. I love you guys. Thanks for having me on. But we love you uh, more. We love you. Are you kidding me? What an get honor. Get out there. I want to tell yeah. people, get out and buy the book. A lot of people out there, you're cheap. You have your confirmation <laughs> money wrapped up in a rubber band <laughs> under your mattress. Go out there, buy because if you don't support Italian American authors and Italian American research, right? Because to do this book is research, it takes a lot of time and money. If you don't support it, it's it's not going to be preserved for you, it's not gonna for survive. your kids, for your grandchildren, for your nieces, for your nephews. Yeah. They, that's why these books are so important because that Sophie Chone recipe is now preserved. That's right. And that happened because you go out and buy the books and buy multiple books. Just don't buy one. <laughs> Be generous. Buy one right. for Gift yourself. Time. It's Christmas Gift time. time. Christmas. Get, give it to your relatives you like, you don't like. Your in-laws will make fun of the Italian people. I know there's a lot of you out there that suffer under persecuting in-laws. Give it out and, Listen, and do it. Support the tribe. No, just as a disclaimer, I did not pay Pat to say Nobody does. You couldn't if you wanted to. Believe me. No, he's right, though. This is a great thing oh, to support. Marianne, Lord. you're the best. We love having you on. Thank you for being part of the familia here at the podcast and so kind to us. And you've just been great. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I always have such a good time. Pat, I need your email address. Please email me. Okay. Absolutely. 
All right. Okay, guys. All right. Ciao, ciao. We look forward to seeing you in person. Ciao, Marion. Yeah, in the basement. Don't forget. You got, you got that. Okay. We hope everybody out there has enjoyed. Hope you're going to get the book from this Italian-American treasure, really, that uh, just graces us with her presence and her friendship. So a lot to learn in the newest book coming out from Marion Esposito. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Ciao, everybody. <laughs> Your life will be great. See that you're born an Italian.